When my uh, family moved to Escondido, California in 1989, we started attending Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Dr. Richard Strauss was the pastor, and he was 56 years old at the time that we arrived. Well, shortly after we started attending, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, cancer of the bone marrow. And over the next four years, my family, as well as the rest of the congregation, literally saw him die. Even as a boy, 10, 11, 12 years old, I, I vividly remember the crippling effect that cancer had on his body. He went from standing strong behind the pulpit while he preached to then sitting on a stool. Due to chemotherapy, he had lost all his hair and his weight dipped below 96 pounds. Uh, one of the, the last books of the Bible that he preached through was the book of James. And I, and I remember, I must have been, I think it was about 12 or 13 years old, and I vividly remember him just, just in a passing comment, him mentioning how uh, due to his cancer and due to the chemotherapy, he just mentioned in passing how he could no longer taste food and how he was always tired, but he could find no rest. Yet despite the suffering he experienced, at the hand of the cancer that eventually took his life, Dr. Strauss's faith and commitment in the Lord Jesus Christ remained firm and steadfast. He never moved away from the hope of the gospel, and his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ was noticed by all. In fact, it was said of Dr. Strauss at his funeral that from the pulpit... He taught us how to live, but in the last four years of his life, he taught us how to die. That is, his death, his slow death, was just as instructive, if not more, than his pulpit ministry. What would you hope people would say at your funeral? You know, there, there is much you can learn from someone in the final years of their life, isn't there? Such as how they respond to challenges, the way and how they act. Faith, our, our study of 2 Samuel finally leads us to the anticipated battle between David's men and Absalom. As we've been working our way through this book, we've known all along that civil war is coming. We've known that there's going to be a battle between the rebel Absalom and his father, the anointed king, King David. Yet, as we're about to see, the author all but ignores this battle as a whole, and instead, interestingly enough, chooses to zoom in and focus almost exclusively on Absalom's disastrous end. Indeed, if space was a criteria of interest 
for gauging interest, then it's very clear that the author's main concern is not simply that Absalom died in the Civil War, but most importantly, according to the space that the author gives in this text, the most important thing he wants us to know is how Absalom died. This is to say, like with Dr. Dr. Richard Strauss, the author, please hear me, wants us to learn something from his death. So that is what we're going to do. We're going to study carefully the death of Absalom, as I believe that's what the author desires of, of us. And as we study this passage in light of its immediate context, as well as the overarching narrative of Scripture, we're going to discover faith that Absalom's death points us to a hard but very important and critical truth. And what is that truth? Well, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel 18. That's page 269 in that paperback Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. As I've mentioned to you, war is brewing, right? We've known this the case for several chapters now. David's son Absalom has led a revolt against his father, God's true anointed king. And last Sunday, we looked at all the plans people had conspired to win the war. Absalom was seeking counsel from Ahithophel. And Ahithophel had some really good military counsel, but the Lord ordained to defeat this good counsel so as to bring an end to Absalom. And we learned last week the really important truth that although often unseen, God's sovereignty is never absent. God ordains to defeat this counsel of Ahithophel. Well, in, in God's providence, we also learned that he allowed David to know what Absalom was planning. So after David, he hears the news that Absalom and his men might attack in a surprise attack. David and company, they then flee to a nearby city where they meet some people and they're giving food and drink. They are refreshed, the text says. Well, while David and his men are being refreshed and cared for, at the same time, Absalom is preparing his men for war. So the battle, the stage is set. The battle is about to go down, and we're going to pick things up in chapter 18, verse 1. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. So David's men who were once weary, they're now refreshed. And we read this. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David set out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abiashai, the son of Zuriah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. 
For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. So notice what's happening here. Once everybody is refreshed, once David's men are refreshed, David prepares them for battle. And based on the urgency of this text, it's clear that David is expecting Absalom is going to follow Ahithophel's plan. Remember what Ahithophel's plan was? It was to cause panic and then isolate the enemy. Interestingly enough, as we're about to see, that's exactly what's going to happen, except not to David, but to Absalom. Now tell me, how does David divide up his men? Into what? Thirds, right? With a commander over each third. And notice who David sets in charge. Who's the first one mentioned? Joab. Now think about this. Joab is given command over a third. This would have been a demotion for him. Up until this point, Joab was David's right-hand man and was the commander of all the army. Now he's demoted to only serving and in charge of one-third. Second is Joab's brother, Abiashai. And then there's Ittai. Now, do you remember who Ittai was? He was the warrior from Gath who just joined David. Remember when David was, was fleeing Jerusalem because Absalom had risen to power, David met a bunch of people on his journey out of Jerusalem. Remember that? One of them was Ittai the Gittite who chose to join David. So now David this, appoints this guy to be in charge of one-third of his army. So he, he's sending his men in, in, in order. David at this point was no spring chicken. Okay, He would have been a very, very old man. Yet notice, does he want to stay on the sidelines? No, he wants to go out and fight. Now, why would David want to do that? Especially, he, this could most likely be the last year of his reign. Probably in his 70s. Why in the world would David, as such an old man, want to go out and fight? Well, I believe our answer is found in the next verse. After agreeing to stay behind, look at what David says next in verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abiashai and Ittai, listen to what he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Everybody heard this. Now, wait a second. Why does David want to go into battle? Well, based on his request, I think it's because David's greatest concern is for the safety of his son. Which, which by the way, is a completely ridiculous and unrealistic request. While you're fighting with swords and killing everybody, deal gently with my son. <laughs> but even more than that, David's request is completely misguided. Keep in mind, 
who Absalom is. He is the root behind all this evil. The only way for God's kingdom to be preserved is for Absalom to be destroyed. Yet David says, deal gently with him. You know what David's request is like? His request is like a patient, a patient ready to undergo cancer surgery who pleads with his doctor, deal gently with my cancer. And then the patient urges the surgeon right before he goes under the knife. He says, you know what? Leave a tad bit of it behind because I feel like it's part of me. Faith, David is not thinking correctly. And we're going to talk about this more next week. But for now, we must note that David does not want to eradicate the one whom the Lord has determined to destroy. Now, look at what's said about the actual battle there in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. Notice how the author distinguishes between the two armies. Who are the bad guys called? The men of Israel. And who are the good guys called? Servants of David. Servants of the true anointed king. Now that distinction is important, and we're going to come back to that a little bit later. And tell me, how many men did the servants of David kill? What does verse 7 state? 20,000. That's a lot. That's a large number. But notice what the author says next. Look at verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Notice, even the forest is fighting for David. I mean, uh, this right here, this is the Ents in the Lord of the Rings battling Saruman and the orcs, is it not, right? <laughs> Notice this says that the forest devoured, ate, more people than the sword. More than 20,000 were killed by the forest. Now, I think this is in part due to David's shrewdness. David led and made sure the battle was in this forest. And the forest here, as I said, is fighting for David. I mean, think about the book of Joshua. And the conquest of Joshua, the Lord fought for Israel by sending natural disasters, right? In various sorts. Well, we see something similar here. But now notice, there is one more person the forest consumes. Look at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth 
while the mule that was under him went on. Okay, can you picture it here? He's, he's riding along, maybe looking back to see what's happening on the battlefield, and lo and behold, what gets stuck in a low-hanging branch is what? Now tell me, class, what have we been told was the most distinguishing feature of Absalom? His hair, right? You recall how the author of 2 Samuel went out of his way to make this point in chapter 14, verse 26. In fact, when we were studying chapter 14, it just seemed completely out of place. The narrative is going along, and then he just stops everything to tell us about the glory of Absalom's hair, right? Absalom's appearance, his hair, please hear me, was his glory and crown. In fact, you remember what he used to do with his hair every year? There's a big deal about it. Remember, they'd cut it, and they'd weigh it, and they'd sell it for an exorbitant price. Listen to me. Absalom loved Absalom. He was all about Absalom. He loved him. Now, notice what we see happening here. Absalom's head is stuck in a tree. Absalom sought to exalt himself. Please hear me. His glory above the Lord, and now he is stuck hanging on a tree. He is hanging between heaven and earth from that very arrogant head. Most likely, I think the author wants us to associate, he's caught with his hair. You notice, while he is stuck, what does this mule keep doing? Keeps going on. And there's some significance there that we're going to talk about in a moment. Now notice what happens next. So this vainglorious man who sought to exalt himself, his glory above the Lord, who prized his appearance and his hair, he's being hung on a tree by said hair. Now notice what happens next there in verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? Notice, I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to see that a no-name soldier was offered 10 pieces of silver to betray a king. I just want you to file that away. Now look at what 
Joab does next. Verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive on the oak. So you have a man hanging on a tree being stuck in his side with a spear. While he was still alive in the oak, verse 15, and 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. Now notice, David wanted to treat the cancer of his kingdom, Absalom, with candy. Joab knew it required surgery and he appointed himself as surgeon. So Joab pierces Absalom's side before he is brought to the ground and then killed. Once Absalom is killed, Joab sounds the trumpet to let everyone know that the war is over. Yet, there is more the author wants us to understand and know about Absalom's death. Look at verse 17. We read this. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled, one to his own home. As, as several commentators have pointed out, Absalom re receives, please hear me, the burial of a traitor, which is what the pile of stones indicates. Indeed, even as we consider what we see in the book of Joshua, this is the burial of an accursed man. Yet notice, that's not how Absalom planned he would be remembered. Before his death, all of Absalom's sons had died. So notice what he did. This is yet another testimony of his pride and self-absorption. Look at verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Most likely all his sons had died at this time. I have no son to keep name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and he called it Absalom's Monument to this day. He, he set up a monument for himself before he even died. <laughs> amen and amen. This is God's good word. Does anyone happen to know what this is? <laughs> it, no, it's not a spaceship, and it's not a real cool-looking tanning bed. What? No, no, no. No. It is a sarco suicide pod. Sarcopods, short for sarcophagus, allow a person to control their death 
inside the pod. Assisted suicide is currently legal in the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Canada. Right now, there are only two capsule prototypes in existence, but a third machine is being developed in Switzerland. The goal is to make suicide easy and accessible. Now, I want to be clear. Self-murder, which is what suicide should be called because that's what it is. Self-murder is serious. Indeed, Scripture condemns self-murder. And you know why? Because, Christian, your life is not your own. Christian, you've been bought with the price. Therefore, the Bible says, glorify God with your body, right? God does not give any of his created creatures the right to murder themselves. Self-murder is a sin. Yet sadly, self-murder is gaining wider and wider acceptance in our culture as these sarcopods indicate. Yet truth be told, faith, there is something even more prevalent in our day and age that is leading people to self-destruction. And you know what that is? It is exalting some glory above God. That is, giving some person or something greater weight and importance in your life than God. Please hear me. Any glory you lift and elevate and esteem above God will take you down. It will destroy you. Case in point, Absalom. Here we have a man, here was a man who lifted the glory of himself above the one true and living God. His hair and appearance was his crown and glory. Yet, <laughs> what does this passage go out of its way to show us? What details does the author emphasize in the death of Absalom? Faith, this is intentional. Notice, Absalom was caught and then struck down because of his hair. Old Testament scholar Peter Lightheart insightfully writes this concerning Absalom. He says, His hair was his glory and crown, but this glory led to his downfall. You see, faith, when we read Absalom's death in light of the overall narrative of 2 Samuel, here is the point I believe the author is trying to get across, and that is this. Any glory you lift above God, it's going to cut you down. It will eat you up. It will devour you. The weight of it will crush you. This is the message of Absalom's death. Friend, whatever you exalt above God as the most significant glory in your life, 
it will eventually lead to ruin. Please hear me. Absalom's grave is one of many tombstones in the biblical cemetery of prideful, self-absorbed men. His pile of rocks lies next to several others whose destruction was a direct result of their vainglory. Think of Haman and Esther. What did he lift high above God? His own wisdom and his own plan to destroy the people of God. And how did he die? By hanging on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. Think of Edom in the book of Obadiah. The whole book of Obadiah is an oracle of judgment against Edom for their pride. Edom had strength and security due to its sandstone cliffs that were easily fortified. Indeed, Edom's heart was well symbolized by her geography. High and hard, certain and proud. Yet they were brought low to the very thing they had lifted high. Like Absalom, they had lifted themselves, their glory above God, and it eventually led to their ruin. Any glory you lift above God will cut you down. And by way of application, I think it's appropriate for us to pause and ask. Myself and you, what do you ascribe the most weight and worth to in your life? What bears the most significant? What glory do you lift high? Perhaps the glory you lift high is the praise of men. That's what you value and esteem. Maybe it's attention from the opposite sex. Perhaps physical beauty or having a certain body type. That's, that's the glory that you lift above God. Or maybe living a certain lifestyle. That's what you esteem. That's what you live for. That's what you lift high. Having a certain car, having certain clothes, looking a certain way, eating at certain restaurants, having a certain lifestyle. That glory of living that way, that's what you esteem high above the Lord. Or maybe it's a good reputation. Christian, be warned. Any glory you lift above God will take you down. Therefore, in light of this truth, I want to give just two helpful applications from this text of how we ought to live in light of this truth. And the first one is this. In light of this truth, forsake your own kingdom. Look again at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went what? On. Last October, I took my family to the Henry Ford Museum up in Dearborn, Michigan. 
And one of the exhibits they had was the actual vehicle that President Kennedy was assassinated in, the 1961 Lincoln Continental four-door convertible. They had the actual vehicle right there. Now, I'm not a car guy, but I do know that cars communicate. And as the Henry Ford Museum made clear, only certain types of cars transports president, transport president. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. You won't see a president riding in a VW Bug, right? No, presidents are transported in a certain type of car, typically a high-end limousine. Well, you know what? type of transport royalty had in David's day? You know what they rode? Guess. Mules. I mean, do you remember what each of David's sons were riding in 2 Samuel 13, 29? They're riding mules. Now notice, what is Absalom riding? Mule. Yet very telling, once he is stuck in the tree, the mule what? Keeps going. And you know what the message is? Absalom is losing the kingdom. It is leaving him behind. The car is left without. Indeed, since hanging on a tree was cursed by God, in this moment, Absalom is being rejected both by heaven and earth. Friend, it took Absalom being caught in a tree for him to depart from his own kingdom. Don't let it take such drastic measures for you. You know, as I was studying this week, I could not help but think of the contrast here between Absalom and Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, right after David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel? Jonathan rightly and joyfully relinquished his armor and his garments over to David, signifying, Lord, signifying to David, I relinquish everything to follow you and to serve your kingdom, not mine. Absalom here is the exact opposite. He's holding on to what he thinks is his till the final moments of his life. So my encouragement to us, to me included, is to forsake our own kingdoms. That is to stop living for ourselves. And can I ask, in what ways do you find yourself living for you? How do you see that manifest in your life? How does it manifest in your relationships, job, parenting? To put it another way, whose kingdom are you most concerned about advancing? The Lord Jesus Christ's or yours? That's number one. But then second, an application I just want to drive, uh, derive from this text is value the true king. Look again at verse 3. Notice what the servants of David say. David wants to go and fight with him, but verse 3, but the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. 
value the true king. For my son Noah's ninth birthday, I took him and his brothers to a Chicago Blackhawks game up in uh, Columbus. And we intentionally, we arrived early so we could get there for the warm-ups to see the players warm up, and especially to see one of Noah's favorite players warm up, and that is Patrick Kane. In fact, Noah even made a sign that he would put up against the glass that said, hey, it's my ninth birthday, can I please get an autograph? Okay? <laughs> so, well, we were able, we got there early and we were able to find a spot during warm-ups right, right on the glass there. And the moment Noah's favorite player, Patrick Kane, got on the ice, Noah put up his sign right up there on the, on the glass. Well, Patrick Kane, he took one lap and then he noticed and he looked over and he read Noah's sign. Then he came right over to us, right on the other side of the glass. He nitly picked up a puck with his stick and then he flicked the puck over the glass to give to my son Noah. <laughs> Everyone reached up to get it, but they reached up to get it, but no one could find where the puck was. And after about 10 seconds of searching, Noah's like, it's in my hoodie. And he pulled it out of his hood. <laughs> Here is that puck. No. Do you see what my son did with it? What did he do? He placed, yes, he placed it in a sealed container so it would not get damaged or destroyed. Not only that, if you go to our house and go downstairs, you'd see he placed this display case in a place of honor at his desk. And you know why my nine-year-old son did all this? Because he values this. It is something of great worth to him. Notice, what do David's men say about David? They are making a statement of worth, are they? They say he is worth 10,000 men. That is, David, we see you, we assess you as being something very, very, very valuable. And Christian, Faith Community Church, how much more valuable is David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And we who are his sons and daughters, we who are his brothers and sisters, through adoption to his kingdom, we are called to value him and to esteem him above all others. So what does it practically look like for you to value God's true king, the Lord Jesus? Not that much different than the way my son treats this puck. First, you value the Lord Jesus by giving him the place of honor in every aspect of your life. That is, you make pleasing him your greatest concern rather than yourself. In your, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, at your school, in your friendships. In that moment, you say along with David, you know what? King Jesus is worth far more than anything I want right now in this moment. He's the greatest thing to be treasured. He's the greatest thing to be valued. What would he want me to do? I must live to please him. 
But then second, just as my son has this on his desk to remind him of how important and valuable this is, Christian, so too, in order to value the true king, you must labor to remind yourself of the worth of Jesus. Listen to, listen to me. This is so important. You are never, ever going to value something you deem as worthless. Does this to say you want to value God's true king? Then do the hard work of seeing how worthy he is of your full allegiance. And you know how you do that? By understanding the gospel in its biblical categories. Consider what we have in this passage, friend. We have a son of David hanging under a curse on a tree, being pierced by a soldier. Not only that, you have a person offering pieces of silver to betray a king. Christian, does this sound familiar? In many ways, Absalom's death, and I think this is part of the reason why the Holy Spirit slowed the, the author down to give all these details, because in many ways, Absalom's death is a type of Christ. Yet while Absalom died for the pride and conceit in his heart, Jesus died on the cross because of yours. And friend, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Christian, 2,000 years ago, all your pride, all your conceit, all the selfish ways you have been living, all that arrogance, all that sin was placed on a tree too. The cross of Christ. I mean, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, the biblical witness screams to us, vanity kills, pride kills, vainglory clears, Whatever glory you lift above God, it's going to take you down. You're going to get ensnared in the tree. You're going to hang from the gallows. Your life is going to be buried by a pile of rocks. It kills. Yet, Christian, here's the good news. The death for your pride died with Jesus. In Christ, you are forgiven of your self-centered ways. Amen? And unlike Absalom... Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and proving himself to be the greater son of David, the actual true son of God. And friend, when you see Jesus for who he truly is, for what he has done, far greater than any souvenir hockey puck, you will want to give him the place of honor in every area of your life. You want to value the true king. See what your king has done. Dying on the cross to pay for the sin of your conceited, self-centered ways. What good news. May we be people who live lives to honor that king. Amen?
Let's pray.